Open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning at verses 6 through 15. It deals largely with the issue of work, which is a problem for most people in how they think about it, how they approach it, how they deal with it in their life. They struggle with work. They struggle with a sense of fulfillment at work. They struggle with balancing work with family with other interests, with leisure, with rest. There are people, of course, who know we know who make an idol out of work. They find their identity in their job and companies become more and more adept at at funneling people into this kind of mindset to to boost productivity, to increase their bottom line in the sacrifice of their laborers for work. There are people who are workaholics, and yet there are also people who resent work. They view work as something that gets in the way of their life, something that gets in the way of what they want to do, robs them of valuable time in, with their family maybe, makes them uh, feel guilty whenever they're not able to be with their family. There are people who think about work as an obstacle to serving the Lord, how they want to be more involved with volunteering at the church or volunteering for God. People struggle in so many ways with the concept of work. There are very few people that I know who, you know, wake up at the beginning of the week and say, oh, thank goodness it's Monday. It's just not normal for most people. If they do, we assume something's wrong. In one sense, it shouldn't surprise us, work was cursed. In the Garden of Eden, it became cursed. You remember Adam followed his wife Eve into sin, and God cursed him. And all future generations of mankind, particularly in their labor, he says in Genesis 3.17, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat your bread. Ever since that time, work has been a burden for mankind, not always a blessing. We shouldn't overlook the fact, however, that work existed before this. It existed before the curse. In fact, if you back up a chapter in Genesis 2.15, it says, The Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. In the perfection of a world without sin and without thorns and without thistles, God created work. And he meant it not to be a curse, but he meant it to be a blessing. It may not have remained that way, but that's the way God made it. There were definite tasks, there was responsibility, there was duty, there was mission. Things which mankind was supposed to accomplish under God's provision. In fact, God not only assigned a task to Adam and Eve, but God himself demonstrated the principle of work. The Bible actually begins, in the very opening chapters of the book, it begins by describing God at work. Six days, 
creating the world and everything that's in it. And then we read in Genesis 2.2, on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Before God actually assigned work to Adam, he demonstrated work. He put it on display. He showed mankind what work was intended to be and how it was to be uh, accomplished. And he called man to model himself after God in that. And then while he rested on the seventh day as a demonstration of the balance between work and rest, ever since then, God has been at work. In fact, Jesus When he was questioned in John chapter 5 about healing a man on the Sabbath, this is his response to the Jews in John 5, 17. He says, my father is working. My father is working until now and I am working. Present continuous tense in the Greek, meaning that it's nonstop continuous action. God is working. So work might have been cursed by the fall, but the idea of work is not cursed it is holy, it is noble, it is godly. It's one of the key, key components, one of the key purposes for which you and I were created. It's one of the greatest ways in which we are to imitate God. And yet, in spite of all this, people still struggle with the idea of work. In the modern Western society, we've almost completely reduced work down to the idea of an exchange of services for goods or an exchange of labor for pay. And so therefore, we have a tendency to assess what we do almost exclusively based on the level of wage that we receive for it. People assume that you are worth what you make or if you don't make anything, you're not worth much. In many ways, we've devalued work in this way so that what goes on in the workplace is no longer assessed according to the creation pattern, but assessed according to a worldly pattern. And in general, if people do not feel that they're making a significant wage, it affects the way they want to do their work. In some cases, if the things you do don't produce an income... There's a tendency to look at it as not having much value at all. You may remember a few years back in a presidential campaign, I think it was Mitt Romney's wife, Ann Romney, was being discussed by a political pundit, Hillary Rosen, and Rosen made this infamous comment that Ann Romney would never be qualified to speak to women's issues because she's never worked a day in her life. She's only a homemaker. That's the worldly view of work. If you, if you don't make an income, then you're not working. If you don't make some wage, then you're not really doing anything. If you don't work for pay, your work is somehow not meaningful. If you don't work for much, it's not meaningful much beyond that. We have devalued a lot of what is involved with daily life, with what is involved with just surviving, what is involved with 
keeping a home and raising a family and doing all those things because so much of it isn't necessarily paid for. And so now vacuuming a house or washing the dishes or repairing your window or taking your kids to piano lessons all somehow fall in a different category for people. And and some people legitimately struggle having difficulty understanding in terms of what God asks of them and what their life really means in those things. Not only that, but this worldly view of work devalues so many other people. It devalues the kinds of work that's done without pay. I mean, retired people now are suddenly disenfranchised. They're undervalued. If your identity is wrapped up and depends on your career, what's left whenever you have completed your career? What are you left to do? What is your purpose in life? Just go off into the sunset in your RV or, you know, sit on the shore and fish or something like that. That's all that you're meant to do because you've completed your work in the minds of most people. And then, of course, there are volunteers. If work is only valuable to the extent that you're paid for it, then there's little to offer in terms of guidance for those who offer their time without rewards. For those who just simply want to do something without being paid for it, a lot of people struggle with whether or not that really has any value or whether or not they ought to work that into their life because in their minds it really doesn't have any category. And there's a lot of people who really think that none of this is ever addressed in any meaningful way in the Scripture, but we're grateful to know that that's not the case. In fact, the Bible has lots of answers. And we come to a section today that we'll spend at least a couple of weeks in looking at that gives us tremendous insight when it comes to this issue of work. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verses 6 through 15, it's addressed as an issue of labor and work and slothfulness and laziness within the Thessalonian church. And particularly, Paul is addressing this issue, this problem of people refusing to work, not wanting to work. And all of it is really built on the backdrop of everything the Bible teaches. Paul doesn't necessarily go into an exposition of Genesis 1 and 2 and and the purposes why we were created. He doesn't necessarily get into the issues of the fall of humanity or the curse on work. But those realities help us understand why Paul says what he says in this passage. And they're essential if we're to grasp these principles. Can help us understand why Paul calls for stern consequences for those who are refusing to work within the congregation. This is what he says, beginning in verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor do we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor, we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone's not willing to work, 
let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Very clearly, there are two issues that are going on in this passage. There's a direct issue and an indirect issue. There's a, there's a surface issue, if you will, and an underlying issue. The indirect issue, the underlying issue are these people who are unwilling to work. The direct issue is how do you deal with them? How do you deal with them as, as Christians, as a congregation? And the re- these two issues really kind of define the text. Paul, if you will, weaves in and out of both of them, giving instruction that is pointed in some ways to one group and pointed in some ways to another He's addressing both of them along the way, and some of what he says helps us to understand our response and helps us to understand how to counsel those who may be unwilling to carry their weight. The indirect issue here of these idle people is something really has been a deficiency and brewing for a long time. It was there even when Paul arrived in Thessalonica. He addressed it all the way back then He says it right here in the passage, I was saying this to you when I was with you. We were already talking about this. This was already on his radar. It was already apparent as a problem in Thessalonica. And then when he wrote 1 Thessalonians in chapter 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, he says this, aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, to work with your own hands as we instructed you so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. So again, Paul's referencing the fact that he's already instructed them in this arena. It's still an ongoing issue he's heard and now he's writing the first letter to them Now he's sent Timothy back. He's probably got another report. Now he's writing the second letter to them and it has gotten severe. We don't really know what created the issue. Some people have speculated uh, through the years that the problem was their eschatology. That, That people who get maybe too concerned about the end times, have a tendency to become uh, slackers in their work and, and that they just get consumed with waiting on the Lord or consumed with looking for the Lord's return and they neglect what they're supposed to do in this real life. That's been a common paradigm that's imposed on this text, but, but there's nothing in the passage that would make you think that. Certainly, Paul never drew a connection between those two things. As a matter of fact, in 2 Thessalonians, the problem was not that they were overly eager for the Lord's return. The problem was they thought the Lord had already returned. So the paradigm doesn't even fit with the problem. We don't really know what the issue was. We don't know where it came from. But it was there and it was persistent. It might have come out of political or social 
background issues that we don't fully comprehend. We know from historians that there were complex systems of patronage within Greek and Roman cities where you had wealthy people who would literally buy favor. They would hand out money, particularly to poor people, to gain their support in local political issues. And some people would attach themselves to a patron and receive their sustenance from a patron. They would literally depend on them. And perhaps that's what's going on in the background. We can't be sure. And and maybe that's why Paul told them in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, be dependent on no one. And maybe that's why he addressed even their testimony to outsiders. Whatever it was though, it was a persistent problem. And it's probably significant that even back in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, when Paul opens up that book, he opens it up by commending them in verse 3 for their work of faith and their labor of love and their steadfastness or persistence of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really not typical language for the Apostle Paul, but he emphasizes it with them. He wants to commend them in this particular issue because perhaps this was an area where Paul had seen growth in them. He had seen growth in terms of their diligence and their work and their labor. And all of it related there to the gospel. So he gives thanks for it. But throughout these letters, Paul consistently draws attention to these issues of work. He even cites his own example a couple of times in extended fashion. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You may remember he talked about his own labors night and day. And even here in 2 Thessalonians 3, once again, he draws attention to his own labors night and day, which were quite intentional when he was with them in order to give them an example. So he obviously felt that this was a significant issue within the church. Apart from dealing with issues of eschatology, this is the, this is the one that takes up the largest amount of space in the text. But here it turns very serious. In 2 Thessalonians 3, the situation is very dire. And Paul issues a series of commands in these verses that we've read. Because there were people in the church who even after seeing Paul's example and even after hearing his exhortations were still unwilling to work. Not only that, they were becoming disruptive. Their flagrant unwillingness to comply with the instructions of the apostles, or we might just say with the word of God, was creating problems. They were becoming busybodies, and therefore creating rifts and divisions within the church and, and having a leavening influence that was permeating the entire congregation. And so that indirect issue, that background issue of not working, brings up the direct issue, which is how do you deal with them? How does a church respond? How do you deal with these kinds of disruptive people? In some ways, the background issue doesn't really matter. When it comes to disruptive people, the remedy, the direction is always the same. When people become disruptive, you must deal with it in a public fashion. And what Paul calls for here would be applicable to any disruptive person. In fact, as we will see, he's called for very similar responses in other 
situations. But in this case, the cause of their disruption had to do with their approach to work. And it revolved around their unwillingness to be corrected in this area. It demonstrated deficiency of character and discipleship and it demanded a public response. And so in these verses, Paul gives them a number of solutions. He gives them a number of solutions. Seven, I think, that we could identify. Seven solutions for slothful people. Seven solutions for the sluggard that the church is dealing with here. That ultimately was intended to stir them to a place of repentance and faithfulness in regard to their work. It's going to become instructive to us, not only related to dealing with disruptive people, but in relation to the way we think about work, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks. But Paul gives these seven solutions for these slothful people. And the first one we can see in verse 6 is very clear. It's simply the demand for separation. The demand for separation. These slackers, these slothful people were increasingly problematic in the congregation. They had been warned. They had been given ample opportunity to hear the truth. They had been, they had been instructed with not only word but also by deed by the Apostle Paul. And now it had reached such a critical point that it required a kind of radical amputation. When these issues arise, it calls for this kind of action for the sake of the health, not only of the congregation, but for the integrity of the message of the gospel. The testimony of Christ, the mission of the church, all of these things were at at stake. And in this case, as with so many other cases, the solution was for the church to separate, to disassociate from these problematic people. And he issues the command very clearly. Now we command you brothers. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. To keep away from them. He issues this command. And he gives it with the appeal. Of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a reference to the authority of Christ. Paul understands the necessity of that. He understands how difficult what he's asking them to do will be. That kind of action, whenever you take that kind of action to disassociate from someone, you are going to be criticized. Obviously, it should go without saying that you're going to be criticized by those who are ostracized. That's just, that's just the reflex action. They're going to critique you. They're going to, they're going to strike back at you. You may be criticized by people who are outside the church, by unbelievers, by those who don't even understand all the circumstances, and they might interpret your actions as being somehow unloving or distorted. You could even be criticized by those inside the church who don't have all the facts, who haven't necessarily followed the case all the way through. You could be criticized from all kinds of angles. There are going to be people who would come to you and say, what in the world thinks, uh, gives you the right to think that you could do such a thing? Who are you? Who gave you the authority to, to, to point fingers, to cast stones, or whatever it might be? Those, 
Those kinds of things are expected. And for all those reasons, whenever you embark on this pathway, this kind of activity, you must have an absolutely clear understanding of the Lord's authority to do such a thing. And this is why Paul appeals to them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this, of course, is a reference to Matthew chapter 18. To the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. When He was very clear in that passage what to do when you have a sinning brother or sister. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens, you've gained your brother. If he doesn't listen, take one or two others with you that every charge might be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Very clear step-by-step process on how to deal with this kind of sin. But Jesus doesn't leave it just there because he understands that that process, while straightforward enough, is an intimidating process. And so he he undergirds it with some of the strongest language that you will find anywhere in Scripture, certainly in the teaching of Christ. Some of the strongest language that you will find anywhere regarding the kind of endowed authority that you have to do such a thing, provided that you follow these steps of confirming things with two or three witnesses. Here's what he says. Truly, I say to you, Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And again, I say, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. And there you have the key phrase. There you have the key component of the authority of Christ. When you embark on this under the, the ordained leadership of, of Christ as the head of the church with the under shepherds of the church attending and you go through this process and you confirm all of these things and then you must stand before the people of God and make this, this declaration to separate from some brother or sister who is in persistent sin like this. You do so, and what you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you agree to on earth is agreed to by the Father in heaven. And when you are standing with two or three confirming this, it's as if Jesus is there with you. I know you've heard that verse. I know you've heard people reference that verse as if it's some sort of confirmation when you gather in the living room with two or three of you for Bible study that this is some, some uh, you know, blessing from God that, that Christ is there with you. But it has nothing really to do with that. It has everything to do with authority when it comes to discipline. When two or three of you are gathered in my name, there I am with you. This is what Paul's really getting at. It's the clear context of Matthew 18 in spite of all the misinterpretations, this teaching about this judicial matter 
And when the church administers this kind of discipline according to God's pattern, they have perfect confidence that they're acting in the authority and the power of heaven. And so Paul makes it clear back over in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Paul makes it very clear what he's asking them to do. He's asking them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness. Essentially the same command that Jesus gave in Matthew 18. The word in 2 Thessalonians, by the way, is stelomai. In the middle voice, it literally means remove yourself from the presence of something or someone. Remove yourself physically from the presence of something or someone. Outside the Bible, the word is used by a number of Greek writers, usually in some association of fear. You remove yourself from some place or from someone because you feared Maybe they're safe, your safety, or in some cases, you might have been fearful of a magistrate or an emperor, and so you just sort of withdraw from their presence. That's the way the word is used. But in this context, Paul is simply using it in terms of your interaction with these people. Not because you feel fear for some physical safety when you're around them, but because you certainly understand the spiritual dangers. You withdraw because you understand the spiritual danger of continuing to expose yourself to these people. They have a disruptive influence. They are people that you are not to be naive regarding the potential of what they want to do and what they have done. And so you separate from them. Now, Paul simply refers to them, he refers to them as the ataktos in the Greek language, ataktos. It it literally takes the word for, um, takto, it takes the word for aligning something or putting something in a row, and it adds the alpha, the negating alpha on the front of the word, so it basically means something that's not in a row, or something that's not in line, or something that's not in order. And that's why a lot of translations translate it as the disorderly, as those who are unruly, as the New American Standard says, or New King James, everyone who walks disorderly, or the NIV, those who are disruptive. All of those really are legitimate terms because the focus on this is not so much the fact that at this point, it's not so much the, the behavior in itself, the fact that they're not working, as much as it is the effect of their attitude. They are people who are unwilling to align themselves, to put themselves under and in submission to the, the prescribed and mandated behavior from God. In this particular context, their disorderly conduct was a refusal to work, but it was also an unwillingness to abide by that explicit command from the Apostle Paul. Or as he says it in verse 6, they're walking in disorderliness and not in accord with the tradition you received from us. So the issue is not simply that they're not working. This is not a, for example, this is not a condemnation of every person who's unemployed. They might be completely unemployed by their own, uh, not by their own doing. But the issue is their attitude. 
They weren't false teachers. Paul's not worried about that. He doesn't even call them unbelievers. In fact, down in verse 15, he refers to them as brothers. The issue then is not their genuineness of their faith or their, or their doctrine per se. The issue is the way they are walking. Paul says they are walking. Or in Greek, that's just simply a word to their behavior. This is a reference to their behavior. They are behaving out of line. Unwilling to receive teaching handed down by the Apostle Paul. Unwilling to conform to the guidelines prescribed by Scripture. And in the end, it was creating disorder within the congregation. So, Paul says, in such a case, you need to separate, disassociate, disfellowship. Paul issues similar kinds of calls, as you know, in other places. The issue is always the same. It's always the behavioral impact of these people on a congregation. So whether it is, whether it is Titus 3.10, he says, a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice have nothing more to do with him. Or whether it is Second Timothy, where he talks about reckless and treacherous people who are swollen with conceit, having an appearance of godliness but denying its power, he says, avoid such people. Or whether it's Romans 16, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the teaching which you've been taught and avoid them. All of these things really have the same aim and the same goal in line. It is to address those people who are creating disruption and causing division within the body. And the solution is always the same. Avoid them. Separate from them. Have a right perspective. Don't be naive about them. The issue really is their response to the Word of God. It is about whether their, their behavior was subject to being corrected by the Word of God. And Paul had given very clear instruction to these people. He had followed it up with his own example of working. He had given them another exhortation in his opening letter of 1 Thessalonians. I'm sure when Timothy made his return visit to Thessalonians, he probably followed that with exhortations in themselves. And all along the way, these people refused to be corrected. They refused to accept the word of the Lord from the apostles. And all this is part of the reason why they've reached the point where they must be dealt with so severely. It was not only their behavior, it was their attitude towards the word of God. They were unwilling to align themselves, unwilling to order themselves underneath the clear instruction of Scripture. Which just highlights that behind all this disruptive behavior, it doesn't matter if it's not working or whatever it is. It doesn't matter. It just demonstrates that behind the behavior, there's always ungodly attitudes and ungodly motives. It probably sounds harsh to people to deal with someone this way, particularly someone who's unemployed or, or someone who's struggling to pay bills or maybe someone who's hungry because of slothfulness. In the modern world where everyone is a victim, almost no one wants to talk about individual 
responsibility. This command from the Apostle Paul sounds incredibly insensitive, incredibly harsh. As a matter of fact, I find it almost impossible to believe that any church in the modern age would ever discipline someone for laziness. It is just so inconceivable in the modern age. But Paul understood that this resistance to work It was just a manifestation of pride and self-centeredness. The kind of pride and self-centeredness that would manifest itself in other dangerous ways if it was tolerated within the congregation. Paul no doubt understood what Proverbs tells us. Proverbs 13 talks about the sluggard and his prideful attitudes. It says in Proverbs 26, 13, as a man turns on its hinge, as a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. He's weary of bringing it back to his mouth again. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can give a discreet answer. Paul understood this. He understood that this behavior This slothful slothful and sluggardly behavior was just a manifestation of a prideful heart. It was a manifestation of someone who considered themselves to be smarter than everyone else, wiser than everyone else, and Paul understood that given time, this kind of heart attitude would soon infect the entire church and would torpedo its testimony and divert its mission. For the disorderly, no matter what their behavior is, one of the key reasons that we separate from them is not so much because of the particular behavior, but because of the leavening effect. The leavening effect. This is what Paul told the Corinthian church, you remember, whenever he he pointed out to them the need to disfellowship from someone that they had refused to do up to that point. And he says to them, your boasting is not good. Uh, We don't really have any direct comment on what the boasting was, but it certainly appears to be the pride that they have not to disfellowship. The pride that they have not to understand the dangers You're boasting, maybe they're boasting about how they're more compassionate and they're more tolerant or whatever it it may be. But Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and envy, or excuse me, malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Well, when it comes to this issue in 2 Thessalonians, Paul understood these same kind of dynamics. And while I understand fully that disciplining someone for laziness is a perceived severe step, while I certainly understand that any church who would endeavor to actually call out these kinds of unruly people 
would be labeled all kinds of negative ways. Under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes this is what it demands. Under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes this is what it takes. A church that's willing to deal with sin in a serious matter. You know, it's so interesting as you read surveys, survey after survey after survey that talks about the decline in church attendance, the decline of the influence of the church, or you read even from the other end, you read about the younger generation and millennials and what they really long for in a church. You know what, what comes up over and over and over again? Authenticity. Authenticity. People are basically saying, you know, I go to church and it's a bunch of frauds. I go to church and it's a bunch of people just playing games. I go to church and there is no genuineness anymore. Everyone's putting on a mask. Everyone's putting on a face. No one really believes this stuff. Well, you want to know why that's the case? It's because churches tolerate sin. It's because churches are unwilling to obey what the Lord Jesus has commanded. They will, uh, they will tolerate certainly slothfulness. They'll tolerate gossip. They will tolerate greed. They will tolerate abuse. They will tolerate all kinds of things. They'll tolerate immorality. They'll tolerate theft. They'll tolerate anything in order to grow their ranks. Well, the Apostle Paul understood that there's a, there's a time, there's a limit, there's a place where your efforts to reach out to even these kinds of people become counterproductive. There's a time, there's a place where your testimony as a church is actually undermined. Not by dealing firmly with sin, but by actually not dealing with it. By actually overlooking it one too many times. And so he gives these Thessalonians the clear command to separate from the sluggard. Separate from the lazy. Separate from the prideful. The person who thinks that he knows more than God. Well, obviously, Paul has much more to say to us in terms of solutions for the slothful, and we will get to those next week. Let me close this in a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful for these reminders. They are weighty words for us. We need the affirmations of your authority when we're called to take these kinds of actions because we readily confess our tendency to shrink away, to not have the courage and the faithfulness to do what you've commanded. Lord, I pray that you would give us that faithfulness. Help us as a church to remain true to what you have called us to do, to align ourselves gladly and willingly underneath your designs as the chief shepherd. And Lord, I pray whatever the behaviors are that are around us, that are disruptive, whether they are lazy people or, or just uh, gossips or any of those people, give us the patience but also the willingness to engage them with admonition, with encouragement, with rebuke where necessary, with prayer and support, with everything we can give in order to see them molded to the image of Christ. 
but with the absolute commitment to holiness and calling them to your standard. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.